Hi, everybody. It's Jonah Pallone, and welcome to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Listen, when I was growing up, most people just told me to follow the normal path and get a job at a big company with quote-unquote job security. Eventually, I woke up, and I pursued business going to UNC Keenan Flagler for undergrad. It was a great experience, but almost everything I was taught in the business school centered around big business and startups. During college, I was fortunate enough to land a position where I get to be around small business owners every day. I get an inside look at how they make tough decisions. I know more about these business owners than a lot of their spouses. With Owner Operated, I want to let you in behind the curtain. Listen, my entire life I've heard people give business owners a bad rap. Since I've gotten involved in helping business owners sell their companies at Midstreet, I've learned that most often the opposite is true. Small business owners are often the most giving and supportive people I surround myself with. I'm on a mission to get the word out that small business ownership is a good thing, but don't get it twisted. I'm going to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. A lot of emotions, a lot of hard work, and just what makes these businesses so special, the people behind them. Join me on my journey into the world of small business ownership. And if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you like. Today, I sat down with Josh Swindell, co-owner of Envision Homes, along with his other partners, Mick and Jeremy. Now, today we just spoke with Josh, but I had Eric Sullivan on the show as well with me. And it's a, it's a funny story. It's actually a real treat for me because Eric represented the real estate of an assemblage of land in Apex um, called Wimberley at the time, and he sold it to Envision Homes. And Josh was the main person he was interacting with throughout the whole process of the deal. And so it was really cool to see their interaction together um, and just to have Eric on the show. Josh was a wealth of knowledge about real estate, but also success in business in general and entrepreneurship. He used to run a Coldwell Banker office of 130 brokers. He was the broker in charge. We had a good conversation about home building in the Triangle area, zoning issues and how to deal with those, but also taking a step back, just general tips for business success. Uh, There's a lot of quotes that I'm going to pull from this episode. Really, really good time talking with Josh. I can't thank him enough for being on the show. Thank you for listening as the audience and let me know what you think of this episode. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Well, Josh, uh, thanks so much for being on the show with us. We're sitting down with Eric Sullivan as well. So thank you guys for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. Awesome. So let's start off, Josh. um, Just tell the audience, give them the two minute spiel on, on who you are and what is Envision Homes. So went to business school at Appalachian State, majored in real estate, urban analysis and appropriate technology. 20 years ago or so, graduated, uh, moved here, started in real estate brokerage and got into the management side of that business, ran a large office, 130 brokers and carry for coal banker for 10 years. And then I guess uh, 2011, 2012 started uh, assembling land when the market was slow and a neighbor friend of mine, uh, Jeremy and I got together. Uh, he had a second generation civil contracting company that he was ramping back up. And uh, we were putting together budgets for development for these assemblages. And that way we knew how much the land could be sold for because we knew what it cost to develop it. And um, started selling land to builders as the economy was improving back in 11, 12, 13. In 2014, we were selling a project in Holly Springs to H.H. Hunt, family-owned company out of Richmond, Virginia. And the division president was a guy named Mick Michael. And about six months into that project, Mick called us one Friday afternoon and said, you guys ever thought about building homes? And we said, no, not really. We know all about um, how to get them sold once they're built. And we know all about how to get the lots uh, on the ground and land purchased at the right price and improved. But that part in the middle about building a home, we didn't know a whole lot about. And when he said, um, 
what about as your partner? We said, now we're talking. And within 90 days, we had started Envision Homes in 2014, late that year. And um, we're off to the races since then. That's awesome, man. And so, so walk me through, you kind of alluded to it there, but was, was the 2008 crash one of the impetuses for you to kind of switch trajectories? Yeah. Um, anybody that studies the natural cycles of markets would recognize that the market was not going to remain as slow as it was forever. And demand for housing would be back up again one day. And some of the one of the longest parts of the housing growth process is the entitlement and assemblage of land. So in Cary at the time they were saying, okay, Cary is 90% built out. Well, when you look at here's a well and septic community where the lots are, you know, four or five acres on average, and you've got 20 contiguous lots, well, you know, I can take that, you know, 50, 60, 70 acres with, you know, maybe 15, 20 houses and turn that into 150 lots. So that's a very time consuming process. A lot of times just get your contracts done. It could take you six, 12 months and then another, you know, two to three years of entitlements and then another year of actually developing. And then you're finally building a house, you know, four to five years into the process. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of the theme of this podcast is sort of demystifying small business ownership. And one of the things just kind of, I'm personally curious about, I'm sure a lot of the audience members are too, we understand what development means in, in kind of building homes, right? Like at a basic level, everybody understands what that is, but I don't think people realize just how complex that process is from, you know, the point of, okay, I'm ready to sell my house to, okay, we're going to buy that house and change that whole, you know, plot of land into a new development and then sell those individual houses. So if you would just kind of walk us through what that process looks like. You know, like I said, you know, one of the first steps is going to be, you know, getting control contractually of the properties. And then as quickly as possible, one of the first things that we will do is uh, sit down with the town, our engineers. We have a couple of engineering groups that we work with will uh, help us generate a conceptual plan. And we'll throw that conceptual plan on the table with the town planning staff and uh, see if we're on track to what they vision. Cause ultimately if you don't get the staff support, you're not going anywhere. So once we're on, board with what they're looking for. Then we begin to work through the rezoning phase. Most properties are going to have to be rezoned to meet the current urban design ordinances that each municipality has, which that process is going to go eight to 12 months in any municipality in the triangle these days. And then once you get through rezoning, you go through another year to year and a half long process of getting your subdivision approved with all your construction plans and engineering and all your permits from your federal and state local agencies that you have to have in order to be able to go out there and do what you need to do. So that whole process, if you're adding up there, is about two and a half years on average. Uh, meanwhile, Jeremy and I are working hard, uh, constantly tweaking designs with our engineers, coming up with the most efficient plans possible that can deliver the look that we want for the community at, at costs that the market can absorb. Uh, in other words, looking for efficiencies. And um, the state has made a lot of changes in stormwater treatment options in the last few years, which has been really nice because nobody ever likes the the big, ugly, wet 
trash collecting pond that's tucked in all the corners of communities and developments everywhere. So we've got a lot of great options that we've been learning a lot about and working with, and we're very pleased with that. And that drives a lot of what you end up looking at when you drive through a neighborhood is stormwater because it's such a huge issue these days and always will be. And when we do neighborhood meetings, notifying the neighbors of our rezoning cases, we spend 50 to 70% of our time answering questions from neighbors about stormwater. So that's a, that's a major piece of the puzzle. But I digress. Getting back to the process, um, once you have your project fully permitted, you break ground, typically depending on weather, um, we're going to be in there for 8 to 12, 14 months uh, doing all the grading, putting all the infrastructure in. Even if you phase it, just to get the first phase of lots on the ground and plats recorded, it's going to take you a solid year. And then once your lots are recorded, you basically at that point um, have pavement rolling out in front of every buildable lot. And one of the things we work hard to do is to... Um, make sure that each lot is graded so that the specific house plans that we want to fit on those lots you know, are already ready to go the moment we record that plat. So there's no more coming out and having to reshape lots, build tiny walls, things of that nature. Once we are uh, plat recorded and, and our builders are off to the races, then it's just go, go, go from there. Because time, as we all know in any business, uh, can end up being excessive costs that no one wants to occur. So, um, the home construction cycle, um, we do a lot of multifamily townhomes, you guys may be aware. Um, typically, those buildings are a little bit longer than a single family home. So single family home construction times run five to six months, whereas on townhome buildings, uh, we're running you know six to eight months a lot of times on those. Um, but under that process, um, I'm experiencing this a little bit right now, personally doing this small addition I was telling you about earlier on my personal home, the, the tradesmen out there, the subcontractors are extremely busy these days. You know, it's the hottest the market has ever been here in the triangle and getting those guys, um, you know, in tune and in line is really like conducting an orchestra, you know, to get all their schedules aligned to their guys are there and not on top of each other and not in the wrong sequences is a full-time job for many and uh, we have a great team at Envision Homes that, that is able to pull it off how they do it I'm, I'm not sure yeah I'm, I'm, I'm definitely uh, learning the hard way right now personally. and people think it's tough to buy a house right now you imagine <laughs> trying to build one I mean good gosh Eric just put an offer on a house that was oh it was absurd and, and I, I almost feel embarrassed even talking about it because it was that absurd yeah. but I'll say it just so everybody can hear it um my fiance and I, we've been looking at homes for probably the last 12 months and we have put in, you know, progressively more insane offers over time. We started out going, you know, 5,000 over and we went, man, this is insane. I can't believe we're doing this, you know, $5,000 over didn't get accepted. Okay, fine. Went to the next house, really liked it. You know what? We really, if we really want this one, we're going to need to put in a little bit higher of an offer over asking price. So we did that one at about 8,000. I didn't get the home. Progressively went higher, put another third offer. It's about 10000 over asking price. Said, you know, this is one, we've got to get this one, right? Nope. Still didn't get the home. You know, probably 15 offers on that one. It's like every single home we offer on is 15 offers. So we go to the uh, third home and I said, you know what? We're just going to go crazy. We're going to go crazy. We're just going to put in a $20,000 over ask price. And hopefully this time it'll work out and we'll get it. Well, we go look at the home. 
I'll let the real estate agent know we're planning to make an offer and that we're going to go you know, about 20,000 over is what we're thinking. And they text me back and they go, that's great, Eric. I uh, just want to let you know, however, we've received several offers in excess of $40,000 over asking price. And I said, no thanks at the time, right? I'm good. But <laughs> this is where the story gets really crazy. This past weekend, well, it's actually two weekends ago now, um, we went, we looked at another home and we really thought, hey, this is it, right? This this one, we really like it. We're going to go crazier than we've ever gone before. But I, I told my fiance, I said, if it doesn't work out this time, we're done. This is it. This is as crazy as we're going. We offered forty thousand over asking price. A, a two, I think it was one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars townhome that we can use for uh, investment property later down the road. Two bed, two bath, great little spot. Um, offered two hundred and sixteen thousand, so forty-one thousand dollars over asking price. Thinking, hey, we don't just want to go forty; we got to go forty-one just in case somebody else is <laughs> as insane as we are. Uh, turns out, somebody was. M- much more insane than we are and beat us on that one too. And and I am truly done. done. I'm just done. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're get us back on track here, Jenna, if we need to, but I believe that, um, we're going into a very important part of this discussion today because we're in a real estate market that none of us have ever seen before in our lifetime. And the competition has driven everybody to the point where Eric and his fiance are. Um, and some builders are too, you know, cause builders are sitting there dealing with, okay, you guys are having to, you know, go out there and bid war for, to get a house under contract. Builders are out there having to, try to figure out how to price homes when every two weeks the material costs are being repriced exorbitantly higher than they were the prior two weeks. And I've heard and I know of several builders who have just said, stop, enough is enough. We're just not going to start houses until this you know, commodity price issue gets some stability. Really funny that you say that. We are actually representing a business that makes crates and pallets for you know all, all different types of industries, but they're they're working with wood every day of the week, right? It's all wood, crate, and pallets, um, and their cost for just buying lumber has skyrocketed. Obviously, the same thing that home builders are dealing with, sure. and we and Jonah and I have talked about this several times. What what's going to happen? I mean, if the lumber prices just continue to go up, nobody's going to be able to afford to build more homes in a time where there's this massive demand for homes for a lot of reasons, interest rates being low, being one of them. Um, so I'm really curious as a builder, you're looking out at that landscape. You've got other builders who are coming to you saying, Hey, we're, we're putting a stop on it. What's your perspective of what the landscape looks like? And are you, are you worried about what it looks like? Anytime you see abrupt changes in a supply chain like we've seen, you know, yeah, you, there, there is concern. (laughs) I will say that. And, um, I think long-term though, if you've lived it enough or read enough about it, you know that it's going to, the pendulum's going to come back and swing to the middle and maybe not so drastically for a good while after that. And I think that uh, that's where we're headed. But to get there, I think that, uh, like I was saying earlier, you got to have a, a good number of builders and, and buyers saying enough. You know, we're just, we're just going to press pause for a little while. Um, you know, buyers will say, we got a roof over our head. We'll renew our lease or, you know what, we're, we're we don't need to move right now. We're just going to take our house off the market or, um, builders are going to say, you know, I was going to start, you know, three or four homes this month, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, 
dying to go start homes, you know, with, uh, lumber prices being jacked up on me, you know, a hundred percent and, you know, 60 days. So I'll wait another 60 days and see what happens. So that's, that's what I think is, is what we're starting to see evolve and how we deal and work our, our way through this. Cause I think the abrupt changes that our society has gone through over the past 14, 16 months has taught us all that if we just take a breather, it, the, the whole storyline is going to change in another 30 days. So 60 days from now, it'll be most likely, if it's anything like the last 14 months, completely different than what it is now, right? Mm -hmm. so, that's a good point. I saw a graphic, um, I think I reposted this to LinkedIn the other day. It's, it's like how much the price of lumber has went up over the last year. And I think it's like 377%, but they made a visual of how many houses you could build with that wood, you know, with a certain amount of wood. It's like $50,000 of yeah. wood. And like, you know, then and now, and it's just like, some people commented and they were just like, this is insane. I had no idea. Cause you hear that number and you're just like, you don't even know, like have a sense of what that means. Right. The, the yeah. visual graphic goes from showing like, I think it's like eight homes to like, and I could be wrong about that, but it's, it's a large number to like three and a half. Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how much it's increased. It's crazy. Um, so, so let's back up a little bit, I guess we didn't even really go into this, but Eric and Josh, you guys know each other before this podcast. This is how we kind of got here. You guys did a deal together where Eric assembled some land and, and sold it to Envision. I guess, Eric, you can start off and just talk about how that process went and how you met Josh. And, and Josh, you can talk like from your perspective, just dealing with Eric, what that was like. Okay. Yeah. It was a, a very interesting um, time frame, I would say. So I, I got introduced to the homeowners over at this property. So the property, just to describe it, was 36 acres that I, that I was representing uh, in Apex, North Carolina, off of Wimberley Road. And the uh, 36 acres was divided up between five homeowners who all owned land out there. Uh, and I initially met these homeowners just by going and knocking on their front door and introducing myself and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm Eric. I would love to represent you guys. Actually, what happened is we saw they had like a spray painted sign out there that was saying, Hey, this land's available. Um, so I went up to them. I said, are you guys listed with anybody? And they said, no, you know, we've listed with people before and they were listed. I'm pretty sure with Billy Mills, if that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, they said, no, we, we were listed with Billy Mills before, but you know, just circumstances didn't allow it to get done. And so I, I just said, well, look, I, I'd love to help you guys with it. And I went in, uh, I got one person listed Then I went to the neighbor. I said, Hey, you know, I just kind of, it was like a domino effect, right? Hey, they're jumping in the pool. You want to jump in the pool too? And everybody said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, we just got everybody's trust and, and piece together this assemblage. And at the time, what's really interesting is the property was zoned as rural residential, right? And shortly after listing the property, the zoning was changed to, I think it's RS 15. I, I can't, I can't remember, but it's a, it's a higher density residential. Low, low, it's just low density. So rural to low. So from one unit to the acre to three, to three, yeah. that's correct. Yep. So that, that was changed just shortly after I listed it. And I, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you that was total luck. hundred percent luck. <laughs> I always wondered that. Yeah. It was hundred percent luck that that happened. Rather be and, lucky than good. That's right. And, and so I, you know, I went in initially thinking, well, the likelihood that this is going to work out. And, and really the only reason that I took the chance on it is because down the road at Jinx, I've got another listing and they're going through a complete rezoning process. And I thought, well, look, this isn't a good area. This area is growing like crazy. Even if it's not 
right for it today, or if the zoning isn't right today, maybe somebody could come in, find the property, and do some rezoning on it, and then ultimately, you know, build on it in whatever way. And I remember people told me, "Oh, you'll, that land, you'll never sell it. There's all these issues with it, and, you know, a big easement going through it, and and just all this stuff." And even at the time, I was like, "Man, I I hope that this isn't a total waste of time, and that I'm not filling these people's head with ideas that will never happen." Um, but I just kind of trusted my gut that it was a good property, and that. The you know, these people needed help and they were obviously willing to sell. And I, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I can help them with that. So I listed it, got super, super lucky that the town of Apex and and really Wake County, I guess, would probably be a part of it too. changed the, well, no, it was the town of Apex and the 2045 land use plan. They changed what they wanted that property to be used for. Um, and we were off to the races. And shortly thereafter, uh, Billy Mills, actually, the person who previously had it listed, uh, contacted me because he was representing Josh um, in Envision Homes. And he said, hey, I know that piece of property. I actually used to represent the owners there. I'd love to talk to you about a buyer that I've got, Envision Homes. And so I, I spoke with Josh. We sat down in Billy Mills' home the first time you and I met. Um, Josh really impressed me just by the way he kind of broke down the process, what would need to happen. And I felt very comfortable with Josh and with Billy. Um, and so, you know, they put a great offer forward. I brought it to my clients. My clients were happy. And ultimately we went under contract and throughout the whole process, it was just a pleasure working with Envision Homes and with Josh. From your perspective of, of buying you know, the property and, and working with Envision to do that, what happened next and where are you guys today with that? So one of the things I've got to give, uh, credit here to Eric and uh, his team for doing was just really going ahead and getting these sellers um, expectations in line because you spend a lot of time as a buyer if you don't have a, an educated broker on the other side of the table working with the landowners and the sellers helping them understand why it takes so long because you're you're paying them a premium for their land these days um and some people you know go out and find what's too high and i can drive you around town and point to a lot of vacant pieces that are still sitting and uh, they don't accept that they're too high <laughs> but um when you have someone who, who's really working hard to set the expectations and they've already got it assembled, that is such a value to a developer. Um, and from, from our perspective, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, Eric, but I made offers on that property going back over four years ago when it was um, LDR. Uh, or excuse me, rural residential. I had no idea. Yeah. Not nearly as high as what we ended up paying for it, <laughs> but they wanted the price that we ended up paying even back then. So the, uh, the zoning work, you know, obviously made a big difference. Um, but nonetheless, we're very familiar with that area. Uh, this was our fifth project along the Wimberley corridor, which is only a three mile long road in the last six years. So, um, we knew exactly what size the lots needed to be, the dimensions they needed to be for, to reach the highest number of builder buyer clients. Um, so that part of it, it went very quickly as far as the, getting the initial sketch. And we really didn't deviate a whole lot from our initial sketch. We showed the town to our final end. Um, we have closed on the dirt within the last couple of months and uh, we are down to just one final permit that we need. Um, there are a, a lot of easements, as Eric said, on the property. Um, you said that uh, you heard that there was a lot of comments from folks saying that it's a 
you know, problem property. Well, guess what? They're all problem properties. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the good dirt's gone, right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, we live in Wake County, North Carolina, one of the hottest growing areas in the country. So, you know, we can't expect there to be layups anymore in our life. If we're going to go out there and do what we do, then we have to roll up our sleeves and be willing to overcome these challenges. Some of them bigger than, than others, but, um, you know, we've, we've, settled a lot of those issues and there'll be more issues to come. But, you know, that's part of the excitement of this business is, um, being able to, you know, understand that these challenges will come. And I think that's with any business and you have to anticipate those challenges. Um, a partner, Mick and I were talking the other day and, um, you know, we were dealing with a pretty, pretty difficult, you know, conversation mainly around this spike in material cost right now, because it's not just affecting the home building side, but, you know, anything with resins. A lot of people don't think, you know, all the PVC pipes that the water lines in the subdivisions that people are drinking their water out of are made with resin. So, you know, right now we're having to order resin for subdivisions six months in advance, you know, just to make sure that when we bust that ground open and we're ready to install it, it's there. And, um, you know, I, I share with Mick a comment that that someone made to me. I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and it might've been my father or grandfather or one of their friends, but they said, you know, when you're, you're, you're working for someone else, oftentimes, um, you know, you get, especially as you climb the ladder, so to speak, and get to levels of leadership, you get, you know, hit with the, with the hard questions and the, and the unfortunate events, you know, sometimes daily, it seems like, and it weighs on you. Um, when you're working for yourself, um, you know, it is an incredibly challenging first few years. You know, they always say, if you can make it three years, you can make it. Well, those first three years are hell. There's no other way to describe it. Um, but the hits after a while start coming so frequently they might not come daily or weekly. It might be more monthly or quarterly, but when they come, they're a heck of a lot heavier. And so you have to understand that the hits are coming. And when they come, the higher you go, the further you go, the harder they're going to be. And you just have to uh, lean on those core principles that got you where you are. And what are some of those core principles that you live by? I'll be as specific as I can. I think for us, it's always keeping an open mind and um, having a partnership of three of us, as, as I've said, from day one, a three-legged stool won't wobble. So, you know, there's no one guy versus another. There's always a tie break. And, uh, you know, we, we evaluate every challenge as a threesome. And sometimes there's an odd man out, but most of the time, uh, we all are on the same page. And I think that, uh, you know, preserving the core cash, of the operation. Once you, when we start out, we had no cash. So (laughs) once you, once you start making cash, you gotta, you gotta build a nest egg and you gotta grow that rainy day fund. Um, cause that's, that's, what's going to get you through, uh, even the worst of events. Uh, when the only thing that you have left, the only asset you have left is a strong legal team, whatever the problem may be, but you've got to have to cash pay that legal team, right. To get you through it. And I know, unfortunately we, we haven't had a, a major suffer of an event like that, but I know enough close peers that I look up to have. And, uh, that's, that's been like the break glass plan for all. And we, we adhere to that. Uh, for certain, um, always looking for better mousetrap, you know, um, I've, I've been reading articles about, you know, homesteaders in Alaska building their own 
sawmills to overcome lumber shortage issues in those markets. I, mean, I don't know that we're there yet. Should I start looking for some land for the sawmill to go? Out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have to. Uh, you have to get creative when these challenges present themselves. And uh, just because you did it this way forever doesn't mean you're going to do it that way from this point going forward. Um, so you know, those are. There's just a couple that come to mind. Yeah. Um, and let's talk, you mentioned your, your differentiated roles with your partners. Um, and I really do want to get to the time when you were a real estate broker, but you know, before we do that, what, when you were coming into this business and what, what was it? 2017, uh, 2015 that you came into the business? What year? 2014. We started, we started assembling back in 11 and 12, but okay. Envision Homes began in 2014, but Jeremy and I were already flipping dirt, so to speak, prior to that. Got it. Okay. So when you were coming into the business, do you guys have differentiated roles and responsibilities? Like how do you, you're three partners, but you all, you've got to have some, you know, kind of differentiated roles. How did you divide those? And did it all just kind of make sense with your personalities? It's landed there. I think the first year or so we kind of sat around the table and kept passing the hats to see which one fit best. And, um, but I think we, we've landed where we kind of knew we were all going to be all along. Um, Jeremy is obviously second generation pipes and streets. So, you know, he, we, we lean on his expertise and experience when we start evaluating a piece of land and trying to, you know, guesstimate, um, you know, the challenge that lies ahead and, and providing utilities to that piece and the balance or import export of dirt that's going to go into it. Um, so, you know, obviously when it comes to going out and executing and putting a hoe in the ground, you know, we lean on Jeremy to make sure that, you know, that, 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 that workflow occurs in the timeline that we prescribe and at the budget that we've all agreed and signed our life to. <laughs> and then Nick's expertise, you know, he was, uh, in the military prior to getting into home building and, uh, you know, he worked for a big national right after the military for eight or 10 years. And, um, I've worked for a big company. Jeremy has worked briefly for a big company. So we've all worked for the big guys and, um, it's just not for us. And that's ultimately what led us to where we are today. And Mick was, you know, progressing down from in size, from the big national to local, large regional to locally owned company. And, uh, you reach a point where you realize that it's never going to quite be the way you want it unless it's yours. And, uh, for me, uh, my background was in you know, real estate brokerage and land brokerage. And, um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm at the bookends of the operation. Uh, I, I do a lot of the contracting of the land and the entitlement work, working with engineers, getting the, the designs laid out and, uh, and, and getting the land purchased and financed and raising capital and all that piece of the, of the process. And then, you know, we worked, Jeremy and I worked together to get the lots on the ground, plats recorded. And then Mick and I worked together on the, you know, the product design. And then we've got a small sales team that I manage at the other end of the process. So I'm kind of at the bookends of the operation. And then Jeremy's more on the horizontal side, as we say, and Mick's more on the vertical side. Got it. And that's kind of another theme of the podcast is a lot of people listening are younger and, and, and they're kind of figuring out what they want to do with their careers. And they're interested in small business and real estate often, but they're not sure if it's the right path for them. You know, a lot of time when I, when I, when I went to um, Keenan Flagler, most of the people that graduated from that school went to large companies, right? Sort of the same sort of path that you just described. And over time, it seems that some of them realize that small business is a better path for them 
you, you sort of mentioned that it's not going to be right until it's yours. Was there a story that you had when you were in the corporate world and you were just like, I'm just tired of this, you know? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can, I can only speak to one company I worked for for a long time, and it's a, you know, a local grassroots organization. I have great admiration for the gentleman that started and still owns it today. Uh, however, um, I think when you start growing and scaling something to a massive size, there becomes, um, a, a, I hate to say it this way, but it's, it's necessary to have inefficiencies. And uh, they become obvious as you're sitting there trying to figure out better ways to, you know, to be an operator. Um, and I think that you reach a point where you say to yourself, do I want to be a part of this you know, massive, huge you know, operation that, you know, has all these inefficiencies, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a good margin, you know, when you add all those pieces together, or do I see a more efficient mousetrap out there where you can cut out all the headaches, not all of them, excuse me, a lot of the big headaches, <laughs> i.e. you can minimize the human capital. That's your largest asset. That's your largest investment in any business is your human capital. And I can tell you from managing you know, over 100 people for 10 years, uh, it, is, it is a full-time task. You know, and it's going to stretch you thin. And even the best time managers in the world will, will find themselves stretched thin, especially if you're trying to you know, raise a family and do other things with your life, which I like to have fun. <laughs> I like to travel. I like to go out and play. But And um, you deserve to. Yeah, well, I don't know deserve, but I, I, I will find a way to do those things. Yeah. And if that means I have to pivot in my career, so be it. <laughs> So going back to when you were a BIC, um, and this is another kind of point as well, you were a partner with two other folks in your in your firm. Was there ever a part of you when you were going through that? I mean, you, you kind of owned your own show when you were the BIC, right? Going from that to having partners in the business, I guess I'll back up and I'll say that when I was younger, I used to think that I wanted to own my own show completely. I wouldn't have anybody else. wouldn't have to split equity with anybody. It'd be my whole thing. And I would just blow it up like crazy. Right. Well, I went into the working world. I worked for Midstreet, and I realized the power of having a team where like other guys and gals on your team that are like kind of in that admin role have differentiated skill sets than you kind of, you mentioned with Jeremy and Mick. Was there ever a part of you that kind of wondered, I don't know if I want to go in with other people because then I'd have to be splitting the pie or, or did you not even think about that? Did that not even cross your mind? Well, I think for the industry that, that we've chosen is it is so complex with so many different steps that it is impossible for one individual to be able to go do it and do it well across the board. You know, so if I was just going to get out there and assemble land and just do that, then I probably wouldn't need partners. But knowing that uh, I wanted to be a part of, you know, the other end of the spectrum that I'd spent 10 years, 15 years of my life living where I see the happy homeowner walk through the door and just get a sense of fulfillment knowing that, you know, home is where humans spend a majority of their life. And, you know, if you want to you know, be a part of creating that space for people, if that's the fulfillment, not the money, but the fulfillment that you're seeking, then I can't just sit, live over here in, in, in the dirt. That makes yeah, sense. That's really interesting. So it, as you, as you know, um, 
land sales, real estate, that's one thing that we do. But really what I do full-time, and I'd say more often, is sell businesses. And in our business, selling a company, I I will say I don't think it's as complex as building a home uh, from from buying the dirt all the way to walking through the front door. I don't think it's as complex. But we're talking most of the time we have um, curated a lead for potentially three years, right? Talked with somebody, built the relationship, followed up with them consistently for maybe three years' time. Uh, they sometimes finally, 10 years. Sometimes yeah. even longer. Yeah. They finally contact us. They say, hey, look, I, I think we're ready to start talking about selling the company. Um, we go through the valuation process. If it's the right time and the right value, then they may say, okay, let's pull the trigger. From that point, just right there, it may be, generally we get it done roughly six to nine months, but it could be a year, a year and a half, maybe even two, depending on what happens in the process. And even sometimes during that time, you got something that pops up, just like I'm sure you've run into and just derails the entire thing. And so, it's really interesting to hear you say with something so complex, it really requires a uh, specialized skill set across a couple of different people, because that's exactly how we're building Midstreet, exactly how Midstreet operates is we've, we've tried to position people in our organization where they're the best served or where they can best serve the organization, because it's such a complex process, just, just like you said. No one person can do every single piece of it exceptionally well. Right. And so to really provide the best level of service, you have to divide and conquer. It's the only way. That's really interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So let's go back to when you were selling real estate. Walk me through, I guess, how you got into real estate. I mean, just the, sort of the genesis of your career. I know you studied at App State um, and got a degree in real estate, right? Correct. First of all, you said you came from a long line of entrepreneurs. Talk me through that story a little bit and your your, your beginnings into the real estate world and, and becoming a BIC. I'll start from the very beginning. So when I was a young teenager, my grandfather, uh, who was very influential in my life, passed away um, unexpectedly. And um, he was second generation um, running a general store in the oldest town in the state. And... Uh, you know, it had been in business for over a hundred years and, you know, it was cash and carry credit. So everything from baby shoes to fertilizer for the fields. And when families, you know, had a hard year, they couldn't pay their bill. They deed over a piece of land as their payment. So when he died, we had a lot of little pieces of land all over the place that a lot of it not worth a whole lot at all. Um, but still we needed to clean it up. And my dad did a great job of going out and, you know, putting together, you know, 1031 packages. And, you know, this went on for years as I was a very impressionable high school age and um, just became fascinated with the whole process. So my mom was my high school guidance counselor. So we played a game that I hated for most of uh, my junior year of what's Josh going to do with the rest of his life every day. Uh, <laughs> I played that game too. <laughs> so I have to credit her for giving a lot of thought. It's good, mom. And uh, almost went to UNC, uh, but at the last minute, aborted mission and chose to go to Appalachian State because at the time there wasn't a real estate program. That's all right. You, can, you could say you made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they were not happy because it's a long line of UNC folks in my family. But ultimately, I think I made the right decision because I met my wife at Appalachian State. So, um, but needless to say, um, learned a lot, had some great professors at Appalachian State and a lot of them developers and learned a lot of great things of, um, of what to look out for. And so when I graduated, it was like, you know, I want to stay in the Southeast. My wife was you know, already in Raleigh and or a girlfriend at the time. This area was poised to grow. And that was back in 2001. 
20 years ago, I moved here and um, began, you know, brokering real estate uh, right off the bat. And um, within, I think, another two years, I was married with a child on the way. And the big of the office I was in decided to leave at the same time. And he's the one who recruited me into this company. And I was like, okay, well, that stinks. But if you're leaving, who's going to do your job? <laughs> So I, th I threw my, you know, I was super motivated. Now I've got this baby on the way. I'm like, what, you know, I need, I need to have a steady paycheck. So, um, ultimately got hired into that role and it was a good fit. Um, moved on to larger offices and, um, had some success at that company for, you know, like I said, 10 plus years running one of the largest offices in the triangle, uh, for residential brokers. Um, and then that, you know, kind of segued into, you know, brokering land. And, um, I had some peers in the business that were some of the biggest developers in the marketplace. And, um, you know, as I got to know more about what they were looking for, then I knew what to look for in the land. And, you know, I, I didn't waste their time as much just showing them every little pig path I could find and drive by that didn't have something built on it already. And I would, uh, you know, put together some, some more enticing packages to the point where these things were getting to be so, you know, shovel ready almost that, uh, that's when Jeremy and I were like, we just need to do this ourselves after a while. So when we were preparing for the show, Eric told me um, something kind of memorable, which is that when I was asking him about you and just kind of your story, he said that, you know, Josh is a high performance guy and he's really, really good with his time. And so personally, I'm kind of interested in this because I'm like, I'm, I, I want to go places just like all these other guys at the firm. And like, I'm always interested in studying sort of high performance people. You know, when you're a big of one of the you know successful you know real estate offices, you have to be extremely good with your time. And also, like there are other things that people might not think about, which is you've got to be able to deal with a ton of rejection and all those other things that come with the real estate business. What are some tips or like I, I don't know the right way to ask this, but just things that you've learned over time to control your time? So. This is interesting. And that was a good observation because I, I used to preach this all the time in my old career. And I hadn't really had a need or opportunity to, to have to dig into this a lot uh, since going out on my own. But I think it starts with, you know, prioritizing your outcomes. So what are you really chasing? You know, what What is it that you want to excel in? If it's just money, then go for it, you know, but if you are looking for, you know, a balanced life, which that's what brings me joy, then I have to know that, you know, I can't just go do revenue generating activities all day because I'm going to be out of balance and then I'm going to be no good for anyone. Right. So I know the things that I do on a regular basis that bring me joy. So, you know, if it's five 30 in the morning and you want to meet, sorry, I'm probably got a workout plan at that point in time. So the answer is going to be no, I don't care what it is what revenue generating opportunity is. But if it's a you know piece of land that I've had my eye on for quite some time and those people finally want to sit down and talk with me, you know, vacations canceled, you know, it's, you know that then becomes the priority for that you know piece of the puzzle because I know how valuable that is to the outcome that I'm chasing there. Um, so I think once you have identified what it is that you're chasing, then you have to just stop and slow down and, and every request of your time has to be analyzed. And then you decide, you know, just make a conscious decision. Does this put me on the path to attain one of those outcomes, one of those goals that I'm after? And if the answer is no, then I can ignore it, which is rude. Oftentimes I try not to, but if you have to, you have to, I can delegate it. Right. 
or I can push it off to a time that I know generally is going to be safe. Yeah, and I think that's a very practical piece of advice for folks listening to this because people often ask the question of how do you how do you manage your time? How do you balance your time? And people say, well, you know, you got to care about your family too, and they don't really go into practically how that works. The practical answer is sometimes work will be more important than a certain family activity. You just have to make sure that you balance those two things out, and and sometimes family will be more important than a certain work thing. It just depends on the priority of each. The hard part is when the priority of each is really high, and there's no real answer for that. That's right. 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 You're at a ninety percent priority on four different items. <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out which come which one comes first. But I like that though, because it, what it really boils down to is to me, what I heard you talking about is values. It's you know, what are the things that you really value in your life? And then how do you assign priority to each one of those things that you value based on what you want your outcome in life to be? Um, I, I love looking at it from that perspective because a lot of that, that is a more practical perspective because a lot of the time it's exactly like you said, you know, this morning and almost every morning that I can, I'm getting up and I'm working out because I really value my health. But I've been trying to get in contact with this landowner for the last two years and they just called me and they want to meet at 530 this morning. It's one is one day you got to go. Right. And, and it's but. And, and so you can't be so rigid with your time and with your you know, managing your time that you never make concessions. But at the same time, there's a balance where you have to protect your time and be somewhat rigid with it. Right. So it's, it's a really funny sort of game that you have to play. But when you look at it from your values and, and base it on outcome, I think that helps. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Definitely. Um, and so one of the other pieces of that, uh, this is something I'm always curious about is this sort of like, I feel like there are really two main buckets of people. There's sort of the self-starters like yourself and there's there's folks who kind of follow, right? And it's a, it's a big generalization, but a lot of times if you're in a larger company, you, you're probably going to be following the lead of someone. And maybe that's not what you should be doing. Maybe you should be leading, but a lot of times just, just by the nature of how it's set up, you're following a lot of like direction. But to be a self-starter, and you know, it seems like very freeing, oh my goodness, like you can be a self-starter, you can do your own thing, you control your own time. And it is all of those things, but you also have to have an immense amount of personal discipline and personal drive to get up every morning and do those things when maybe you're just all that you can count on. You don't have you know a, a team above you saying, here's you have to be at this place at this time. So what are some things, were you always sort of a self-starter growing up? Was it just kind of in you from birth or did, did you kind of learn certain, certain tips along the way to help you with it? Um, yes. I've, I've always, you know, been, for some reason I was always, you know, interested in going out there and, and doing something for myself. And, you know, you didn't have to tell me twice, you know, I would go out there and do it. Um, as far as, you know, tips, I think the, the, the key thing that I always, you know, tell myself that keeps me going is that, you know, the, the, the low hanging fruit is gone. You know, anybody can come by and pick that, but if you want to go out there and really, you know, do something unique and make a true difference in the world, whatever it is you're doing, you're going to have to persevere. And, you know, it's, it's, you're going to think that you're a dead end. And trust me, I have chased some dead ends that are truly dead ends. <laughs> it took me months, if not years to figure it out. <laughs> but, you know, uh, more often than not, I think just my wanderlust in general of wanting to know what's over the next ridge or around the next corner has led me to where, okay, there is a way to connect these two points a lot easier than what we originally thought. So now that we got it here, we figured out something unique 
unique. That's uh, what we call a lot of times around here is a unique value proposition. You know, we're always looking for that in every project. And, um, you know, the first thing I will say for us that we're looking for is, you know, it's no secret location. And, um, you know, if, if your model is to go out there and to you know, grow a, a mile wide and just work a huge volume, but only be an inch deep in, in your day to day, then, you know, it's going to be hard to go out there and find locations. We talk to you know, companies all the time. We're like, you know, we, yeah, we, we'd like to talk to you guys about, you know, developing a project for us or buying some land from you guys. But, you know, we got to have at least 200 units. Like, yeah, get on the bus. So does everybody want 200 units? We'd love to have 200 units, but you know, finding those big tracks large enough in Wake County anymore, it's impossible. So, you know, you can't just be to your point, Eric, so rigid and say, you know, this is, you know, our operation. Um, if, if you're a small company like us, you know, if we're you know, big publicly traded, yeah, go for it. We can go build homes wherever, hope they come. Right. But, uh, we want to, we want to make it as easy on our team, the building team, the sales team to, by having, you know, great locations, because when you have great locations, then occasionally you'll get to take advantage of the benefits of uh, price appreciation while you're building. Mm -hmm. And especially with times like this, when you see just vacillating, you know, uh, su supply chain issues and prices in those supplies, um, you can adjust prices where some locations you don't get the luxury of adjusting prices. And practically speaking, how do you guys find, you talked about you know, how difficult it is to find you know, the right opportunity, all the easy stuff is gone. How do you find deals as a builder today? How do you find like your next thing? Like if I were to say, all right, well, well, currently, obviously you're working on the project that Eric helped, helped sell, but your next thing, how do you find that? Do you have a team under you or is there sort of a relationship person? I think this is, this answer is, is true for almost any business and it's all about who you know, right? So, you know, um, we have a, you know, three-party collective of relationships that we've each spent 20 years building. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of marveled at as a partnership is that our networks do not overlap a tremendous amount. And so, you know, obviously I've got a ton of broker contacts and landowner contacts and, um, and then Mick has a ton of, you know, of people in the home building business and brokers that he knows. And, you know, Jeremy's got a ton of, you know, people in the engineering world and the developer world that he knows. And, um, there is no like one source that says, Oh, we get all our deals from here. It's coming from the whole network. And, uh, you know, we're constantly vetting opportunities in here. Um, you know, Jeremy's got a tremendous estimator team at his, uh, development company, his civil contracting company. And, uh, we're able to very quickly take a look at a piece of land, throw together a sketch and put together a an initial budget. Um, and that's what it tells us, you know, how much we can afford to, to pay. Can we pay them what they want or do we, you know, to your point earlier, sometimes we get into bidding wars, um, over land and, um, you know, we might have figured something out before anybody else. And we know, Hey, the stormwater here isn't going to be quite as bad as most people would initially think. So we can go ahead and pay that additional 40 K or 41,000 or whatever we can pay to get it. But, um, you know, whereas that might win the opportunity for us. Yeah. Do you have any mentors in your life or any that you've had that really made a big impact on you long-term? Um, tons, uh, of, of various different mentors from, from all walks of life. Uh, but I think, you know, business wise, um, I've got, you know, just relationships with a lot of successful 
you know, uh, real estate people, developers, um, and just learning through doing deals, I think, um, is, is a great way of being mentored. Um, but as far as just generally, you know, how to go out there and, and approach the day and, and really, um, how to focus on those outcomes that you're seeking. Um, I think the, the gentleman who's the CEO of the company I worked for, for many years, uh, for, he was there for about 10 years. Uh, he, he, he played a big role. He's kind of, you know, you look back, it's like, okay, my, my high school football coach, you know, made a, made a big difference. And, you know, he's, you know, there's always going to be, you know, two or three, I think that really stick out. If I had to pick one professionally, he would probably be it. And if I were to sit down with you guys for a drink at dinner, what would be some of the takeaways from that? session that I would learn from him. It's one of the things I loved about working for that organization for working for him is that they truly let me, you know, for the most part, run the office like, like it was mine. That's why I stayed there for so long. Um, but I think what, what you would hear coming away at that dinner is, uh, you know, you got to start with the end in mind, right? As he would say often, you know, what's the flag on the hill? And then how are you going to go take that flag? And then, you know, lean on your resources to build your plan to go take that flag. That means don't make that decision in a vacuum, go share it with others. Cause the more you share with people, what it is you're going to do, the more you're being held accountable to go do it. Right. Anybody can walk around and talk in their head about how great they are, what they want to go do. But if it's only you, if you don't do it, then who are you letting down yourself? Okay. But if you're out there sharing it, you know, the vision board, you hear people talk about, you know, and people laugh about it and they clown Tony Robbins for those types of things, but they work because if you're walking into a space every day and you've let it be known to these people, Hey, we're going to go do X and you're not doing it. After a while, you're probably not going to walk in that space in much anymore, right? You're going to go down another path. You might not admit that you've pivoted to yourself, but you have. So I think just, you know, some of those keys is what you would walk away, just sharing it, getting outside of your own head, not being scared to uh, lean on others and um, be vulnerable to working on a team. I love that. Put, put, what's the flag on that hill? Yeah. I love yeah, that. That's, that's, really that's cool. definitely a clip. Um, this is a selfish question I have, but, but as you were kind of making it in the real estate business, how did you get, you, you mentioned just now getting outside of your head. How did you get outside of your head? Maybe you had a sales call and you were like, man, I know this is, this is a little bit above my, my level, but I'm going to try it anyway and do the best I can. How did you get outside of your head? How did you get more comfortable being uncomfortable? So you, you just said it. I mean, every time you, you take a step outside of your comfort circle, your comfort circle grows larger and larger. So I tell my kids all the time, you know, uh, if you're not, you know, if you're not feeling a little anxious about this test, if you're not feeling a little, uh, nervous butterflies in your belly about this ball game or this performance that you're about to do, it's like, well, you're not pushing yourself. Right. And so if you go out there and, and you flail, but you live, you survive, you now got that real life experience. And as the famous quote goes, you know, you don't lose as long as you don't lose the lesson. I mean, that, that is so true so many times. And it's hard when you get that rejection and it doesn't go your way and you lose and you wanted to win and it didn't, you know, you didn't get that piece of land. You didn't get a deal done. It stinks, but you can't dwell on that. I mean, that's what depressed people do. We're not depressed. We're going to focus on the future. We're going to focus on the here and now. And what did I do wrong? I'll spend, you know, we'll spend the, you know, 30 minutes, an hour debriefing. Okay. What, well, we'll do that again. You know, we could, we could spend all day doing a podcast called, you know, don't do that. Again. <laughs> what, what we did wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think uh, once you once you start to recognize that, you know, okay, won't do that again, moving on, then that's when you're really growing. That's a really cool piece, though, because so often what happens, and this isn't something that any successful person would would try and do, but so often what happens is people on the periphery who are looking at somebody who is, you know, at the in the I wouldn't say the ninth inning, but maybe the eighth or the seventh inning of their career, and they're just they're killing it. They've done a really great job of building a network or building a business, whatever it may be. People look at that and go, "Man, that guy was just successful all the time." I mean, from the moment he started, he was just he was just successful. Right, and that's the that's the lie that people tell themselves. Um, not that they do it intentionally, but I think it's just a common thing of looking at somebody else and kind of placing them on a pedestal because of where they're at today. And to have somebody like yourself who has been successful and who's who's gone through a lot of learning in their life look back and say, "Yeah, you know, I, I sit around and I think about the things that I've done wrong, but then I move on and go after the next one." It just even just that. I mean, if you're first off, if you're not reviewing the things that you could have done better in any deal or whatever you're working on, you got to do that. But just knowing that everybody, including successful business owners, they all make mistakes. I mean, it's obvious once you say it, but for whatever reason, at least myself, when I was getting into the industry and I looked at other business owners or talked to the other business owners, they were just like these exalted individuals, right? They've, they've never made any mistakes in their life, which is hilarious because it's the exact opposite. Sure. It's the exact opposite. Most of it is just like you said, you grow your, um, your, what did you call your comfort zone by stepping out of it. And they're constantly stepping out of that comfort zone, making mistakes, falling down, but getting back up persevering and just becoming more by doing more that you're more uncomfortable with. That's right. This show is brought to you by Midstreet Mergers and Acquisitions, a business intermediary based out of Raleigh, North Carolina, that specializes in selling businesses generating $1 to $25 million in revenue throughout the Southeast. If you own a business and are considering an exit, check out their website and contact them at midstreet.com. That's M-I-D-street.com. Now back to the show. Do you, can you recall any, I mean, I'm sure you have these stories, but just, just so that people have context, what was, you know, one of the most like craziest sort of deal stories you have when, you know, you're building a, a, a development and just something goes wrong. And how did you guys deal with that? What's one of those stories? I know you have some. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Rolodex, like real quick. Um, so not to get too granular, but we had a deal where we phased it. And um, ultimately, there was a dispute between two of our neighbors over a boundary line. And it didn't impact us because the dispute was further down the line, but we also had an adjoining boundary with them on our second phase of our project. And the municipality would not let us record our plat for that second phase. In other words, we had pre-sales, we had huge momentum going in the first phase and we were completely built out of that first phase and we could not start the next phase until these two neighbors got done disputing. What were their names? (laughs) (laughs) When when the day comes that Josh retires, then that would be the day that the names get released. (laughs) uh, I just want to put them off to the side so I know. (laughs) Needless to say, if you're ever uh, worried about dealing with a bad guy, you can just call me and I can tell you the names. But nonetheless, uh, you got to get out there and you got to deal with the the sharks sometimes for sure. And and the way that it landed was that the municipality said, you know, we were like, well, what can we do? Because we were literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. They said, well, if you can figure out 
way to get these neighbors to get along and sign off on their dispute, then we can record. And ultimately, Envision ended up paying those neighbors to get along and to wow. sign off. Did we have a dog in that fight? Absolutely not. Were we treated right? No, not at all. But did we have a vested interest in getting our plat recorded and exhaust every resource before we finally did the last thing we wanted to do, which was to pay them to fix a problem that wasn't ours? We did it, and it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but was we didn't it, dwell on it. Was it ultimately worth it? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And one of the things you mentioned before we started the show was um, we were talking about zoning, and that's a topic I want to just touch on briefly. But you mentioned the Triangle um, Community Coalition. And so I guess talk through that and just in general for somebody thinking about getting into the building industry, zoning is a huge topic. It's always something I hear about whenever I hear about, you know, builders and what, and what they're doing. How do you just kind of basic principles for how you navigate that landscape and, and you know, meet the people and, and really listen to the community so that you're bringing them what they want and following all the, the procedures that need to happen? So every municipality varies, right? We have 14 technically in the triangle um, and they're, they're all very different. Um, you mentioned the Triangle Community Coalition. One of the things I love that that organization does every year is a uh, is a developer real estate industry survey about each municipality's entitlement process. And then at the end of the survey, once all the results are collected, each municipality is ranked from most builder developer friendly to least. And it changes. So we'll, we'll just use Cary since you know, we're, we've done a lot of stuff in that municipality through the years, but notoriously previously, Cary had a, a rough reputation as being not developer friendly and builder friendly. And they are strict and they are tough. However, they are predictable um, for the most part. None of them are, are a walk in the park. <laughs> and I've had Cary come and tell me in the third round of construction drawings that we needed to put a second entrance in a neighborhood of 30 lots, which killed 15 to 20% of the lots. And if you know the business, 15 to 20% of the total revenue, which was the profit piece of the stack. Of the job, <laughs> right. And uh, that was not fun. And so I will tell you that for the most part, I mean, there's 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 outliers like that, but for the most part, carry has is, is got to be very predictable. They're very organized in their process. And as long as you follow the process, you can say, I'm going to be here at this point in time and there at the next point in time. And that's what you need to, you know, transparently communicate the landowners when you're trying to help them understand what to expect when it comes to having the permits and entitlements you need to take the risk of purchasing their land at the top of the market price that you're at. Whereas, and now Carrie has moved up to, I think, third in the survey as being the most builder developer friendly and others, which will go in name for now, have fallen drastically because of just the lack of organization, the lack of leadership at the local level. And you know, you don't have to look far to figure out who I'm talking about here because it's a revolving door of employees working at these municipalities because of the lack of leadership. And it's very difficult to go in and get a project approved because you may just go chase rabbits for nine to 12 months before you can definitively say, okay, we've made progress in this rezoning case. Uh, I've got one that just literally, and COVID had a lot to do with it. Everybody was trying to figure out how do we take these live neighborhood meetings and live town council where the community gets to give their feedback about this approval for this piece of land that's been here from inception of earth. 
And that's the process that has to take place. I mean, everybody deserves a right to have, you know, to speak out, but you can do it virtually. We've pivoted and we can all zoom, and, but it took some of these municipalities a year to figure it out. Wow. And that's inefficient and that's unfortunate for those of us who, you know, were working on projects during this time. We lost a project because of that very process. We got through rezoning about a year later than what our contract contemplated and the sellers wanted to close immediately after rezoning and uh we had not had the opportunity to do one review of the of the engineered plans and it was a very tight infill site where we had 12 units to the acre of density pr proposed and uh there was no stormwater solution that had been identified yet and we were just starting to work on that and we certainly weren't going to take the risk of paying top dollar and closing on the land without knowing what you're going to do with the stormwater because mm -hmm. it is such a huge issue yes what are the next steps for Envision? What do you guys see as the future? So you heard me speak to, you know, we don't really desire to go out and be, you know, the mile wide, inch deep guys. You know, we're more focused on those core projects that we believe in where we can, you know, develop. We can then sell lots to Envision and then Edge, our real estate company, can sell the homes for Envision. And our main objective, our ideal model, guys, is to have, you know, three neighborhoods minimally at all times that are at the three stages of the cycle, which is, you know, one just ramping up like Wimberley is right now. Um, one that's at full tilt, like our park station townhome project in downtown Cary right now. And then, you know, one that's winding down at all times. And so we finally got to that point about two, 18 months, 24 months ago. Um, so it took from 2014 to call it 2019, it took five years. That's, that's the typical cycle of a neighborhood uh, from the time you put in a contract to the time where you're starting to wrap it up. So it took us uh, until about 18, 24 months to get there. Now the main objective is just to maintain that velocity. Um, but yeah, we'd probably like to, you know, add a, maybe a fourth neighborhood just to kind of as a gap filler, um, when, when one's winding down sooner than planned or something like that. But ultimately where that's going to land us based on our five year performer, what we're looking at is we're doing about 50 homes a year. But we don't get hung up in the unit count. That's one thing that happens a lot in our industry. And we're more focused on, first and foremost, making sure that each unit has the target margin that we're looking for. So we're more margin focused. Have you guys thought about starting an acquisitions company? For, for real estate or just, or just I guess, buying real estate as a group? You mean investment property? Yes, we have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting you bring that up. So, yeah, we are looking at um, a couple of different things right now. We've got a couple of our projects in our pipeline actually that we're looking at as you guys are well aware there's been a big boon in uh growth of the single family for rent build for rent uh community um and we've you know talked with a lot of those companies that are growing actively in that space right now uh, and some of them we're talking about you know potential jvs on projects because they're extremely capital intensive so you're parking a lot of cash for a long period of time versus what we do now which is you know turn the cash a little faster all right, Josh, we're in the rapid fire question round. Okay. Welcome. <laughs> um, we're going to wrap up with a few questions here and we'll get you out of here. First question, and this is something that I'm passionate about, um, books. Any book recommendations that were insightful to you over the years that you would recommend someone else read? I go hot and cold on reading, so it's, I've been in a cold spell. Um, but I will tell you just as far as 
getting my mind wrapped around the time management piece of life was the seven habits of highly effective people. I've probably read that book four or five times and glean something new from it every time. Got it. Yeah. That's a, the I've time, read it once. So the, the time management, the time management matrix was what I was picking off pieces yep. from in the conversation. Important, earlier. urgent, et yes, cetera. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We've had some conversations about that. Eric yeah, we have, um, routines. You mentioned a five thirty wake up workout. Um, what are some routines that have helped you over the years that you've adopted? Um, it's always been, you know, fairly early start for me. Um, but not always to work out, you know, um, sometimes it's just, you gotta just rest and just have some me time, right? Read, but then it's always making time, you know, for family, for friends, and then, uh, you know, do the hard things first. So there's five categories. I was trying to remember them earlier. When we we're talking about time of, of time management that, um, I'd always really focus on adhering to and now it's just become second nature. So I don't even remember what the labels are, but it's when you're prioritizing, it's, you know, plan your time for yourself first, your friends and family second. And then you get into, you know, more of the more difficult things. Most business people have to do is go out and generate business, right? And it's the thing we look forward to the least. Do that first while you're energized, figure out in your natural rhythm, when is your mind the sharpest? When are you the most proactive, the most productive and do that activity at that point in time. For me, it's in the morning for other people. It could be later in the day. Um, and then you get into the business management aspect of things, which is more of the, you know, the, the responding to emails and the paying invoices and, and things like that. So, um, that, that would be the, the general routine. I can't do it the same way every day cause I get bored, but you know, the one thing that I try to do is to mix it up and do it all every day in some capacity. And, um, the, the mentor we were speaking about earlier, he had a, a saying that I'll never forget. He said, you know, if you, if you truly want to get the quality out of one aspect of your life, you got to make sure you get in the quantity because you can go out there and you can have, oh, I'm going to crush today. I'm going to get this number of calls in. I'm going to get this done, get that done. It doesn't get anything like that. Or I'm going to have this fantastic vacation with my family. We're going to have the best time. And it goes horrifically wrong. But then you just say, you know what, let's go for a family walk this evening. And it becomes one of those most memorable events of your time with your family to date, you know? So just put the quantity in whatever it is important to you. And, and that sounds like you, uh, you've taught some real estate folks over the years <laughs> <laughs> they do have a challenge of uh, staying in balance uh, as a group generally speaking yes it's something that we we deal with too as business brokers m a advisors whatever you want to call us it's just that it, just what you talked about it's like you live and die by the sword is the nature of the business so you have to generate business but there are other things that are important including personal life and fitness and family and all those other things so it's cool to hear you talk about it yep it's getting up in the morning and eating that frog yes. you know, the, the generating new business Business, that is the that is the frog that we eat. <laughs> That's the uh, is that the Seth Godin book either. I think it is yeah. either that or um, it might be Brian Tracy. I thought okay. Brian Tracy maybe was the, the eat that frog. I've, I've never read it, but I've I've used that same phrase uh, a, a thousands of times with my kids. I'm like, what does that even mean? It's like I don't know. But I don't want to eat a frog, but you got to do it, so just do it. <laughs> yeah, if you got to do it, do it first, right? Yeah, um, that's great. Any hobbies that help you kind of decompress outside of the work life? Man, I, my, my neighbors will tell you, and a lot of my neighbors are my friends. Uh, you'll see me out in the yard, um, you know, gardening, doing yard work, working on the house. Um, love being out fishing. And uh, my kids enjoy those things, too. So being with them, playing baseball with the kids, we, we love to ski and snowboard. So during that season of the year, we're out um, on the mountain as much as possible. 
So just being active. That's great. Have you ever been out to the Outer Banks for fishing? I grew up down there. So you're familiar with uh, TW's Bait and Tackle? Yes. We recently just sold TW's Bait and Tackle Yeah, to a guy uh, from Texas, really great guy. Um, but that the largest store that they have, the one that was in Kill Devil Hills, yep. I believe it is. Nagshead. Is it Nagshead? I always get the two confused. The one that's in Nagshead, their large store, we helped Terry Stewart just sell that recently. That is fantastic. Yeah, I, I saw was uh, there in the fall. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I saw in your LinkedIn profile, you got an intercoastal angler hat yeah. on. So I figured he, he goes to the coast and fishes. Yes. Yeah. We, we love to get away as much as we can down to the coast, especially this time of year. We just went to uh, Topsail back in December for a company retreat and uh, obviously a different location, but I'm getting more into the fishing game. Yeah. Myself, <laughs> Jonah so. just caught his first fish uh, this this last December. <laughs> yeah. Put me we on took blast. him out on a company retreat and he caught his first red drum, but first, first real fish yeah, right yeah that was my yeah. first fish i've caught frogs before <laughs> <laughs> he loved it he got hooked immediately uh, yeah be be careful because it's addictive oh, I, that's what i hear same thing with golf too i know that if i get into that i'm just gonna get sucked in <laughs> i used to play a lot of golf but uh it's it's i still like to get out there but right now i'm in a phase of life where uh, my kids are middle school and high school and are very active ages and uh you know it's just not I tried to get all three of them into golf. One of them played for like two years and then she wanted to play tennis like her mom. And, um, since it's just me, I just couldn't justify being away from the family that long on that, that, that period of time. But then again, I, I did play golf yesterday. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm still sticking around. That's, That's right. <laughs> well, Josh, I got to thank you for being on the show, man, being so courteous with your time. How should people find Envision and, and what are some of the, I mean, maybe one of the cool projects that you guys have recently launched that people should know about? So EnvisionHomesNC.com is the best stop as for our website. And uh, we, we try to use that primarily as a conduit for people to get a hold of us. I'm typically the first responder to inquiries. Um, and then, but also keep the gallery fresh so people can see, find, follow us on you know Instagram and uh, Facebook. Um, but we're very excited about the park at Wimberley. That's going to be fantastic. Uh, I think we'll be you know moving dirt out here within the next thirty days out there. And, uh, that's exciting. That, that's going to be a, a good one, um, just because we'll we'll bring that that neighborhood to life at the same time that the community's getting a brand new park and we'll be their next door neighbor. And it's going to be, it's going to be a cool experience. I can't wait to see where that, how that turns out. I know. I'm so excited to see it. Built. Yep. Yep. It's going to be good. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. It's been good. It's oh, been yeah. great. Yeah. It was awesome talking to you. Likewise. This episode of Owner Operated is sponsored by On Tops Roofing, a family-owned and operated business servicing the Triangle area of North Carolina since 1991. With a long-standing commitment to quality work and customer service, On Tops has grown to be recognized as one of the most respected roofing contractors in the Triangle. They offer roofing work, window replacements, siding replacements, and gutter installation services. Check them out at ontopsroofing.com. That's on topsroofing.com. Thank you for listening to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at jonapalone.com, where I share the takeaways from each episode and share any resources or tips I find valuable. And if you like the episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show grow and send it to a friend that you think would benefit from it. Thanks so much.